Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Marlies Wirth. And you are currently in the position of? I'm the curator of digital culture and head of design collection here at MAC Vienna, Museum of Applied Arts. Now, give me a little expansion on digital collection. That's a newer term for a museum. So, like, what does that mean here? Now, digital culture, it was just recently added to my position title uh, two years ago, to be exact. And it uh, concerns all the new technologies and how we use them and how we use them as new tools of design and how they influence and impact our behavior, our knowledge, our society, politics ecology, economy, quite every area of our lives, really. And that's what we called digital culture. Also, we expanded on the design collection by not only collecting objects in a classical term or products, but also collecting ideas and concepts and increasingly also partly in the digital realm. For example, a live running AI model that creates new emoji by machine learning and things like that. Very cool. Yeah, I, I'm, I come from a sort of a new media background. My last teaching job actually was new media, so like I'm all about it. Okay, so one question I always wonder about people, especially like somebody who's in a position such as yourself, how did you get here? So for instance, all the way back to childhood, were your parents into the arts and creativity? Like, was it a teacher? How did, how did you even sort of get to the point of like, this is what I want to do for a living? A uh, very good question, actually. Actually, it started in early childhood that I loved to draw and I looked at the art books and architecture books of my parents. My dad was always interested in being an architect, but he never became one. And yeah, they were quite fond of me being interested in that idea. And um, coming to school, I loved uh, like the topics, philosophy and uh, art education. Mm -hmm. and to debate and think about how these creative things can add to the way we perceive the world rather than only facts or the, the normal life, how these creative ideas could uh, make us see the world in a different way. So that's when I decided that I want to study art history, which I did. So I'm actually coming more from the yeah, art field and slowly increasingly shifted towards also being concerned with design through working here and yeah so I studied art history and I was always interested in conceptual art and the way these people think like uh, conceptual artists think and try to change established systems for example mm -hmm. um, by seeing things differently or by having even the uh, drastic formulation the, the work doesn't need to be made it's just the idea or the concept that is initially uh, the, the quality of okay. the artwork. All right. So you can see that I'm rather not so much into what you would, as an American, maybe call uh, classic art market art. Like, yeah, so you're not the commercial curator. Not the commercial type, right? No. I was always more interested in installative art or art that um, involves new media or different kind of media um, that does something to you in the way how you walk around it or use it or perceive it mm -hmm. rather than painting, even though obviously as an artist or an I also do love painting, don't get me wrong, but still shifting increasingly also more towards um, art that um, uses technology 
for example, the work of Trevor Peglin. I've been following him since he started using machine learning to increasingly tell us about what data does to us, which data is taken from us, um, how biased these technology are, technologies are. I don't actually want to know the answer to that question because I'm sure it's horribly scary. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I lived in the United Arab Emirates. I mean, I can only imagine the amount of surveillance and data gathering that they did on me. I mean, it's bad enough I'm an American, but the UAE was very much a surveillance uh, society, and it's quite frightening. Yeah, also like China right now with the social credit score system that came from an initial idea of, like the name says, scoring someone if he's he or she is valid to get credit from the state bank but um, shifting towards a complete means of actually yeah data slavery well, I mean, or, the, yeah, the, surveillance well it's an interesting idea because like in the in when i think back to the arts and the history of the yeah. arts it was very much all very personal it was like i like this i'm gonna buy this i'm going to be your patron or an artist produces something and somebody just says i like it kind of thing and it was very individual, unique, one-on-one. These days, I find that a lot of the industry of the arts uh, ends up being based on algorithms. You know, so like if you make beautiful art and you build a website, your website's only going to show up on Google searches because of an algorithm. You make amazing pieces and you don't put great hashtags on it on Instagram or or social media, like the algorithm is going to make it so it's not going to be as whatever. So like there's a certain aspect of the the arts industry that is has become a slave to algorithms, I mean, of, of various forms that didn't happen even 10 years ago. Certainly that is the case. And also the question is, how important is it? Um, I mean, is it important that the art market sells art, also through Instagram and hashtags and however platform? But the main question, which is also tied to your initial questions, how did I get there, yeah. is um, that I was always interested in like, art that is publicly available and can do something to you, to the way you're thinking mm-hmm. and behaving rather than something that you just buy like a commodity and hang up in your house and keep it for yourself. Oh, I ran a public arts program. I, I get the whole so idea. I, I'm more the museum person, obviously, than the gallery uh, person, be, just because also of that very naive and simple fact of saying, I want art to be a, a commons and in a public museum collection, it can be that more. Well, but there's still then a bit of finance I, in that because I mean, the, ga- of course, the, it's all tied. the museum has to buy these things generally. Sometimes they're nice enough to be gifted, but yes. I mean, but generally there's still finances that involve involved. Absolutely. In this. I mean, you're going to a finance meeting after this uh, podcast. So, I mean, there's still as much as we, we all don't want to have money involved in the arts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, unfortunately, in many ways, it still makes the whole thing go around whether we like it or Absolutely. not. Absolutely. So I'm not saying that I don't want money involved in the arts. I'm just saying rather than... I want more uh, money being involved a pri- in the arts. Also that, uh, please note. Uh, <laughs> rather than seeing art as something personal that I can hang in my living room, I was always interested in seeing art as something that is on public display and therefore can engage multiple groups of people from different backgrounds, educational or interest-wise, who can then look at it from different angles and debate about it and have some impact from it. 
Well, and that fits with your design part of this as well. I mean, like exactly. I grew up with Heller dishware and things like this in my house because my parents were very creative in their own ways. So, I mean, the idea of uh, utilitarian design, things that can actually be utilized on a daily basis, but yet also aesthetically pleasing or tactilely, you know, uh, exciting or whatever. I mean, that's a, a, an a important aspect of, of the creative industries. Um so the museum here is focused more on the, what's the f foundation of this museum? The foundation. As a whole, so not just mm -hmm. you. No, no. The foundation of the museum when it was... Applied uh, arts, that's the term. Founded in 1864, was um, applied arts, what we call now design, basically, a very contemporary approach. So they bought things right off the hands of Joseph Hoffmann, Adolf Loos, and all these grants gentlemen of the Vienna modernism and also the Wiener Werkstätte and had those as examples of good design, exemplary collection it was called, to show it to the students of the University of Applied Arts next door, which was co-founded with the museum, and teach them how to become little Josef Hoffmanns and Adolf Loses, basically. Only later the museum began to collect backwards and uh, find also great objects that happened before the foundational years mm -hmm. and also it was expanded with a large asia collection that we still have i noticed in the store there was lots of like japan and other things like this exactly. even tea sets and stuff like this that also stems obviously from an interest of vienna 1900 for the shinazori or like the asian concepts of simpleness and uh, things without ornaments or different kinds of shapes or very classic shapes as we would see it now and it was expanded um, in the contemporary realm. So from the 90s onwards, the museum was also concerned with contemporary art and made quite impactful exhibitions with also very well-known American artists uh, with the likes of Vito Aconci, Donald Judd. Finally, some names I recognize, yes. <laughs> different, like really, um, yeah, Jenny Holzer. Uh, concept of um, tying the applied arts, design and contemporary arts stronger together without differentiating between them being useful or not useful, which was done and is still done a lot, um, saying like art is, has no function, but design has. And I see that a little differently. Hmm. Many people do nowadays. So the art has a function, but the function is different from the function that a chair has for you. You know, art functions for you but maybe as a stimulus of your mind or as um, showing you something in a, a different kind of way than you could be shown by reading a newspaper article about the same topic. Mm -hmm. So this kind of mediation. Anyway, so the foundation of the museum reflects back on applied arts and applying arts <laughs> to the society was a big topic also early on and still remains with us. Currently, since the foundation of the so-called Vienna Biennale that was inaugurated in 2015 and took place for the third time this year, um, the MAC, together with partnering institutions in Vienna, tried to focus on current topics, or as uh, some guests of mine earlier just called them, phenomena of our time. Um, Very eloquent. Although the word phenomenon might not be accurate uh, as a whole because this kind of like technology and what we just talked about, how big data and all this surveillance mechanism and surveillance capitalism, as coined by Shoshana Zuboff, 
ties into our lives right now, also into the art market, such as you mentioned, with the algorithmic pricing or like the algorithm that determines if you're up or down or out, is not only a phenomenon, but is the current status of our presence and near future and possibly also the future. So we have to deal with those topics. And for the longest time, we have ignored them. Or art museums are still prone to ignoring these topics. This, this is something for the technology museums. We have nothing to do with it, which is not true. Well, um, artists are prone to ignoring these things as absolutely. well. Absolutely. Yeah. There are few artists concerned with these topics. Not enough yet, my opinion. I, I'm trying. I mean, I, even when it comes to the podcast, uh, I run into these algorithmic issues. Like when I created this podcast, I based it in the Czech Republic because that's where I mm -hmm. live. And then I found out that because I created it in the Czech Republic, it's not showing up at all in the United States. And I'm like, well, but, but it's, why? It, it's in English. Yeah. It's about something that people in the United States care about. But because of the algorithms, because it's in the Czech Republic, it only shows up in the Czech Republic and in Europe. It doesn't show up on searches in the United States. So I've had to figure out how to redo that to format it because, I mean, it's in English. So mm -hmm. more people in the UK and the United States are going to listen than necessarily in all the different languages and countries in Europe. But because of the algorithm, I'm, I got sort of screwed on that. So it's very, it, it's, it's different. It's very difficult sometimes for creative people to try to have to think through that logical uh, sense of how to work with these algorithms and stuff instead of try to fight them. Because as much as they annoy me to all hell, uh, I, it, it's a fact of life. We have to work with them. They're not going away. Yes and no. So I, I'm not saying that every one of us needs to become an expert on how to handle the algorithmic so, uh, like su suppression of, of podcasts or websites on the global web. I don't, I don't believe any of us will ever be experts. <laughs> no, but uh, what I'm saying is that we should, we meaning the um, museums, especially design museums, but also increasingly art museums and architecture museums, I think, should concern themselves and their audience with the topic of how technology influences the way we work, we produce, how we design processes around us, which kind of tools we do have at hand. And not only to have the 3D printing is a very old technique, by the way, it was invented e way back. But, but it was yes. made affordable of course, just it was recently. Made affordable. Definitely. So the question being, how can we speak about and make exhibitions and presentations about these phenomena or these new developments in technology <clears throat> so to creatively explore them and maybe see them through the eyes of artists or designers so what we recently did here was an exhibition titled uncanny values artificial intelligence and you i know the uncanny valley yes have you seen it the exhibition no but i know the uncanny valley that's great uh, it was coined by Masahiro Mori, a Japanese uh, roboticist in the 70s, and explained basically an acceptance curve that would um, drop into a valley uh, once you encounter more human-like creatures, such as robots or like, uh, how do you call that even? Animatronics. Exactly. Yeah. And um, what we did with the artificial intelligence show, we took the uncanny out of the valley and um, titled the show Uncanny Values because of the topic of Vienna Biennale being concerned with the ethics and ethics and values around technology and how it's being implemented. 
And also the uncanny as a term coined by Sigmund Freud in Vienna 100 years ago, um, the once familiar and now unfamiliar in the familiar, such as you look in the mirror and suddenly you're not sure if it's a stranger or if it's yourself. Mm -hmm. He explained you could have some episodes like that without being mentally ill, but this kind of suddenly looking at things or suddenly looking at a bottle and think, oh, what a strange shape it actually has, mm -hmm. because you're kind of seeing it for the first time. Anyways, the uncanny valley effect, but we wanted to draw it away from the physical appearance towards the idea of intelligence and this um, term, artificial intelligence, which implies that there is an intelligence, which is not natural, but artificial, which is basically, said, so experts say, um, a wrong term for the phenomenon that is titled like that. That often happens, yeah. Exactly. And more accurately, um, what we were uh, doing is inviting artists and designers with existing projects or commissioned projects to help us explain and understand ourselves what is going on here. And um, as I mentioned, for example, Trevor Paglen is an artist who was exploring the surveillance state uh, for the longest time and who has also looked into which kind of data sets are given to the machine to learn. So the actual idea of artificial intelligence is it's a system that is being trained right now. So it's trained by us humans, by data that comes from us humans mm -hmm. and is therefore corrupted because we are corrupted. We are biased. There is no objectivity. Yes, well, it's the scientific nature of like, if you want to observe something, it's changed because of the act of the observation kind of an idea. Also that and because of history, which happened clearly. So we have large data collections, um, for example, um, of prisoners in the United States, and most of them are black ma male people between the ages of 20 and 30. So if you give a machine uh, learning algorithm, a data set consisting of all imprisoned people from the 60s up till today to learn from and then predict who would be prone to become a gangster in the future, they I'm would say guess a black, black male, male from 20 between, to 30. Yeah. See, so um, how come it's not that the machine is so prophetic and so smart? It's just based on the wrong data or biased data hmm. because the data is not per se wrong. Obviously, those people were imprisoned, but why? And, you know, this could continue. Oh, because the U.S. judicial system is horrible. Exactly. I mean, just so. across the board. <laughs> Yeah. This is the way, and you can do that with nearly every other data set. You can look at why uh, is there data, which woman type of women are considered the most beautiful. So what they did as a learning data set, they took the Miss World pictures of Miss World elections from the past 50 years. So That's come horrible. On, like, That's a uh, horrible, obviously. <laughs> horrible data set, like seriously. <laughs> but 1 to 1.618 though, that is the good ratio. No clue about that. So um, at this one uh, specific example, it's interesting to see, okay, um, how does a machine learn? What does it learn from? And how can we counteract maybe this bias? Because... Well, I mean, it's also still, it's, it goes back to like uh, printers where it used to be like crap in, crap out. Like if you, you, you put <laughs> sure. in bad content, like you're going to get a bad output. So, I mean, it's the, sort of uh, the next level of that basically is that... If you're biased or super selective or have a minimal amount of data, you're you're going to get a a very obvious response by the from this intelligent this artificial intelligence that, that favors 
pretty much whatever data you put into it. Absolutely. Like I stupidly, I can't believe I'm admitting this on the podcast, but like I play uh, Fortnite, the, the, the role-playing game. It's really stupid. I can't believe I just admitted to doing that. But the, what I, the first thing I thought of with this game, it's a, it's a, a battle simulation game. And the first thing I thought of was, oh my God, they're getting so much big data on how people battle like so like how people either attack or hide or or um you know statistically how many people are aggressive how many are passive how many you know like the amount sheer amount i mean there are hundreds of millions of people playing this game across the world and that's the thing like across the world genders ages everything and and they're getting literally this company now has this big data that they could almost sell to uh, military people all over the world saying like, hey, statistically, this is your likelihood of these people being more, uh, you know, the people in this region being more aggressive versus passive. And like, I mean, the amount of information that they can sell from a game scares the hell out of me. Absolutely. I will hope for all of us that this is just a conspiracy theory like Yeah, totally in my mind. Mind totally game of mind. yours. But of course you're absolutely right. These kinds of things can happen. They have happened. And, and if they're, we still think happening. they're still happening. Absolutely. <laughs> and uh, just recently I heard there was a bug in Facebook where you would open you, the camera would open yeah. and look mm. back at you. So I didn't experience it myself, but I mean scary AF and also, you know, you see what kind of backdoors are open through these kinds of technologies. Oh, there's so many backdoors in so many technologies. And I mean, it, 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 it's, it's interesting because like I have a friend who I, I recently tried to look up on social media and I'm like, oh, I wonder what's going on with this friend of mine from high school. They have no online presence at all, like no website, no nothing. Like, they don't exist. And I, Uncanny. And, well, and in some ways I was sort of like, I'm not sure if they're falling behind or if they are somehow enlightened. I can't tell which is because like it made me sit back and actually go like, well, fuck, am I ruining my life by being so online and, and they're doing it the right way by not being online? Like, I can't figure it out. Yeah, there's probably no right and wrong. I think if you're smart and, and educated about how you use your social media and we really also try to tell that to younger people who visit our exhibitions concerned with these topics to, to look after like who do you want to these this data to be seen yeah i mean you because you're you're basically creating anything you do or put online no matter what format it is is defining this thing that's going to for lack of a better word but haunt you for the rest of your life because like it cannot be erased it, it will always be f able to be found in some way so like anything you put online is sort of almost etched in stone. Like this is going to define the rest of your life. Like me, I was a drug addict. I was all kinds of crazy things. Like if I had been raised in the age of social media, I would never have gotten the jobs that I've gotten. I would never have the qualifications that I have because like people would have looked at me and like, oh yeah, okay, you did that. No, we can't hire you. <laughs> like you hung out with these people, can't hire you. Uh, I mean like, I'm quite scared for the future in that way because like I would never, I don't get me wrong. I had a great time being a drug addict. It was so much fun, but times passed and like, so, and I've distanced myself from it. And most people don't know about it until they listen to this podcast. Now they all know about it, but they, they don't know about it, you know, and, 
and I can sort of expand past that, and it's fine. I mean, you can choose who to tell, basically. And nowadays, I am not ashamed about I mean, some I, things. You can't choose who to tell because it's already online. That's what that's what I'm saying. Yeah, like I mean, yeah. I mean, like I'm choosing to say I'm been clean of med drugs for 19 years now. It's fine. I don't care if you know about it anymore. There are no laws that will, that will affect no. me at this point, so it's okay. And in other countries, anyways. But, so, but yeah, the, I mean, the whole issue of like online presence and existence and this big data, like, I mean, it's, I don't, I honestly don't want to know just how much. I mean, like London, I was watching something about London and the amount of surveillance cameras that exist in that city and, and how they're using it with the facial recognitions and the, all this kind of stuff. And then the, the GPS that's in our pockets everywhere we go. I mean, literally, like if the, all these companies, they know our movements, they know where we go every day because we all keep this data literally in our pockets. And it's like, oh my God, that's so scary. And it's also used to define um, and progress uh, consumer habits. That's this idea of the surveillance capitalism is also to maybe not see if you're a good fighter uh, if it comes to war, but um, they also see when are you online, which websites are you scrolling through, what did you order on Amazon, did you order something on Amazon? It's so funny, you use Amazon here too? Okay, but I, I just got here to Vienna and I got here and I got off the train and I got onto a, a bus and literally 30 seconds after getting onto a bus, it said, I got a little pop-up saying, so is there a lot of uh, passengers on your bus with you? And I'm like, how did you even know I was on a bus? You're my phone, for you, God's sake. You looked sake. it up on Google Maps, I'm sure, right? I did. Exactly. But then they asked me, like, so is your bus crowded? What the hell? <laughs> like, Fantastic talking point, my friend, because this came with the recent iOS update. I also had that on a bus recently. Uh, when I just finished that update and I was like, what the fuck exactly? And the thing is, we are doing unpaid invisible labor. Every time you use face recognition to open up your phone, to Which unlock your phone, scares you the shit train, out of me in the first place too. I don't have that, but most people do right now. Uh, you train facial recognition algorithms, obviously, because now you can also look at it from a different angle because before it, you had to hold it straight well, I, up. And I wear glasses, so yeah. it's like whether my glasses are on or off, and it still fit, recognizes And if you use Snapchat or the selfie filters, the beloved <sighs> ones on Instagram, I also tried those, obviously, but of course you must be aware you are training facial recognition software with it. You're enabling... Did you do like little cat ears? What did you no. do? No? Okay. Robot related stuff. There you go. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, so you do that kind of artificial labor. Every website you access where you have to prove that you're human or prove that you're not a robot and click on parts of traffic signs, you are doing invisible labor to improve machine learning systems who cannot yet solve these. So this is kind of also something we tend not to talk about. The way we are becoming increasingly tools for this giant system that we helped ourselves to build. So we built it brick by brick by, with our free will. And now we stand within these walls and we are like, oh shit, it's, it's moving on to us now. Uh, now I'm getting uncomfortable. Now I have to tear down the walls. But how do we do that now that we are part of it? Oh, we don't. We have our data. You can't <laughs> you know? undo... I, I, I don't know, it sounds also like a conspiracy theory at I times, was but it about is... about to give you another conspiracy it theory. It is a fact, basically. Well, so. like, 
I'll give you my conspiracy Please theory, do. as absurd as this is, and I know it's really crazy. I remember when what Apple created the thumbprint, right? Oh yeah, the, the thumbprint one. Smart. I was sat there and I'm like, oh my God, if there is some person at Apple that doesn't like me, right? Like as a person, they don't like me. They now have my thumbprint. Well, they could take that thumbprint and they could like manifest it on a crime scene. And all of a sudden I could be accused of killing somebody because my thumbprint showed up at some crime scene because I gave it to them. Well. What the? Why? <laughs> Would make a great movie plot, but here I would say rather unlikely because who has time for that? But Somebody who oh, really doesn't like me. You're a very likable person. So. I hope so. But, uh, of course, you've convenient enough, the thumbprints of millions of people are stored in one database. And somebody and has access to it, even though they say nobody can be has access sold. to Those it. Those things are valuable. So yeah. the idea is if, for example, someone, it might be you, is searched for because a crime has been committed where fingerprints have been found, the company could be asked to make an exception from their actual terms and regulations because the nation is in danger because of that criminal, maybe even a, ther a terrorist. We use terrorists for... Oh yeah, we love all that the time. excuse all the time. So they would be obliged to give out a sample of, of uh, fingerprints reduced to the group of suspects, uh, let's say male between 30 and 40 How can you tell American that from a citizens. fingerprint? I don't know. Just saying. So, <laughs> but they have to use the data also. Ugh. And your face. Your email now address, they have their your face, bank account yeah. number. So. Oh God. I don't <laughs> Anyways, but um, of course these whole da data sets have been sold. And we know that from the Cambridge Analytica thing, and it can happen all the time. Things can be sold or can be leaked. They can even be stolen by hackers. I mean, it's not like that. I know, uh, no. That the companies always are the bad guys who give it out for free. So it can be in different ways. So the, the question is, uh, what do we get out of this amount of data and invisible unpaid labor we perform? Is there a way to, to own it back, you know? You're making me even more paranoid than I already was. Like, so sorry. I tried to stay away from this stuff because it scares the shit yeah, out I try of me. I try to stay away from conspiracy theories, but some um, of the actual facts that are known yeah, they're are not, not theories so different anymore. enough. Yeah, they're not <laughs> theories. That's the thing. They're, they, they become conspiracy fact instead of conspiracy theory. But... Uh, all right, let's let's, yeah. let's shift topics. Let's shift let's, topics. So, Absolutely, I'm with you. I'm getting a bit sort of like on. Don't that. you worry. All right. <laughs> Don't commit crimes. <laughs> well, somebody else get anyways. The, all right. So your role here at the museum. Yeah. Let's get back to the arts because that's really what my my interest is. As much as I love conspiracy theories, I try not to tell them too much to the world because they're just all in my mind. I'm sure. So. In the arts. So you, so, okay. Well, one question I have. So you're talking about like digital works and things like that, that is your specialty question I've always had. How do museums acquire non object based works? Like, do, do you like, like, cause I, I think back to like Solowit paintings where he basically just faxed in instructions. Like, how do you buy that? Um, for example, of the first digital work we bought, we bought it with Bitcoin, clearly, <laughs> back in 2015 from the artist Harm van den Doppel. 
um, from the platform Coin Temporary, which was or is a online gallery run by two Austrian artists. I've never heard of this. Okay. And they sold artworks from artist friends, also physical ones. Just for one day, they were online and you could buy it for the Bitcoin course of that day. You couldn't speculate. It was also an art market critical project. I was going to say, yeah. Or rather, you buy today or never. And you can't wait till the Bitcoin euro ratio is better or worse for you. You just have to, if you want it, do it. Anyway, so the, the digital artwork we bought via that platform is a, a screensaver, actually. It's a screensaver for an old iOS system. Still running, I have it on my laptop uh, that I use privately all the time. So it's a screensaver, it came in an edition. We bought the first 20 of it and we can do whatever you want with it. So we own it. It's also inscribed in the blockchain because we bought it by Bitcoin. And yeah, we can show it. We had it in an in a exhibition that I curated. It was called 24-7, The Human Condition. It was about our times of yeah being 24-7 busy and actually at work and it was presented on a desktop screen just being the screensaver it is it's a really interesting uh, work because it's um, with algorithmic drawings but with a poem or poetic statement by the artist Tom van den Dobbel stating how he behaves in social societies uh, social contexts and deals with social anxiety so it's a really interesting work. You can look at it on his website. And yeah, that's uh, the first thing we did. So, Sorry, yeah, the the, ex the sort of a deer in headlights expression that's on my face right now I can see that. Is, is actually more about like the nature of you, the uh, uh, an established museum purchased artwork via Bitcoin. That's the part I'm sort of like, what? It's just <laughs> a currency. You know, we also purchased artworks in US dollars. Or British pounds, so it's yeah. No, somehow no that's different. more legitimate. I, I don't know why. It's no it's different. Totally my biased, obviously. So yeah, yeah. it's no different at all. So hmm. it's just you have the value and you pay it. So when uh, when your museum, because I'm, we're talking about your experiences in your life, kind of thing, when you all choose to acquire a, a piece of art, what what kind of um, system do you all have for acquisitions? Because uh, like, I mean, there's on the one end, there's a curator with a. Uh, discretionary budget that they can just go out and buy because they love something or on the other end there's like extreme committees and and inside you know it, people by groups deciding on things like so what's your museum sort of uh, take on how to acquire we are still a little bit lucky i think compared to u.s american museum who, museums who have these large committees and oh no it actually was tate modern was one that was or, given to me yeah, yeah. Tate's like also. yeah the uk is none, none the wiser but um yeah here it i can't i'm just thinking if it's all the, the the state museums our museum let's talk about the mark we have this policy of we can make suggestions the curators of the, the respective collection can make a suggestion of things to be acquired and it will then be discussed with your immediate boss uh, who is the the director of exhibitions and collections and our director the actual director of the museum it will then be discussed sometimes we discuss it also with a larger part of other colleagues if it's more concerned like more collections right and um let's say as an example we just redid the mac design lab and we had some smaller design objects 
I can also name prices around 200 euros, for example. So in the design lab, we also purchased uh, design objects with the value of 200 euros. Mm -hmm. so of course, we discuss it with the director and get it approved, but this is easier. What is harder is acquisitions of larger artworks or ensembles of, of, of works. So there's two different systems also. Uh, one is the, it's called gallery funding something. Uh, it ha it's a state pool. Right, actually, wait, yeah. so the, let's, let's take a step back. This museum is privately funded, state funded? State funded, okay. public museum. 100% state funded or is there uh, sponsorships, corporate sponsors? Not 100%, obviously. So majority state funded yeah, exactly. with some other sort of corporate exactly. sponsors and things like this. Okay, I just mm -hmm. make that clear, like trying yeah, to figure sorry. out. Yeah, you know, Yeah, because I mean, if it's privately funded, then of course this no, whole process no, would very be very different. different. Yeah. yeah. Okay, all right. So state funded director approved is exactly. basically the That's final the approval system. the final approval is always curator director of exhibitions and collections and the director of the we museum. jointly discuss shall we or shall we not and then depending on the height of the acquisition price there are different models of how we can come to acquire that either we ask private fund sponsors like you said collectors or donors yep. to help us acquire that or um, there's this also state-funded model of the gallery funding systems where you can acquire artwork from local galleries, Austrian artists, where you can get some support in doing that. I've heard about this, mm -hmm. something about like you buy it and the state will give back like 50% of the purchase price or something, yeah, something like that. Like that. Yeah, okay. That's very interesting. That's very nice. Uh, I mean, that's a quite a luxurious thing. It's a quite thing, unique model. Yeah. I'm not sure how long it will still be around, but it has been. It's an Austrian thing. Hmm. And yeah, it works well for the also smaller, younger galleries, obviously. Mm -hmm. And then there's the Ludwig Foundation, which is also part of the Mumok Museum of Modern Art in Vienna collection. Uh, the, the family Ludwig, the collectors, gave their collection to this museum. And there's also this foundation, which also has a system of, with a jury, with a committee, deciding to acquire works for the major museums in Vienna, which then belong to a joint collection. Okay. So it, it, it's the, the works are then kept in the respective museum that asked for, the, for its acquisition. Right. But, but it could be it could be loaned is, around. It basically. is actually in a in a kind of overarching state, state public yeah, state yeah. owned collection. Interesting. Okay. And there, it's there are larger amounts of money in the circle, so you can apply for acquiring larger, more prominent works. So we talked a little bit about how to how the process of acquiring something is how do the decisions come about though like and that's something that always interests me okay keep in mind i'm an artist and i'm a professor so on one hand i'm being selfish and i want to know how do museums acquire artwork a but b how do they like how can i what are the ways that I could sort of tailor my career to get it so that i can get into these kinds of things and I'm also doing this sort of as a proxy for people listening to, to the podcast that are artists going, I want to get some works into an institution. Like, how does that happen? Basically, how do artists get on your radar in the first place? It, when they do quality, solid work. 
Sorry, guys. There's no other way. And well, but, okay, yeah. but somebody can make amazing work, but then how does it get to you? Like, you so can like, always write me an email. <laughs> yeah, but seriously, yeah, of don't, course, don't it's, write it's her harder emails. than that. Um, of course, you have to try and be in different exhibitions that are meaningful context for your work. Not only solo shows at your gallery to sell, which is obviously important, but we all need to make maybe a living. also be part of, of thematic group shows by great curators. There we are again. Uh, in, curators maybe, of the gatekeepers. In institutions that you feel comfortable with, where you think this kind of institution does a program that I can relate to in my artistic process. And I feel maybe at some point my work could be part of that collection because they have been showing and collecting works that go in that direction or are in that medium or are concerned with this and that theme. So focus on that. Because the only thing that I uh, might criticize about some fellow artists out there who just randomly write to every curator in every institution the same email, uh, let's say it's a oil painter and they write to the Museum of Modern Art, makes sense, do have painting collection. Museum, Mac, Vienna, no, you know, not going to happen. So this is kind of... You have no you oil have, paintings? Like none? Mm, few. Yeah, it's a lot. To, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. But it's not a focus of our collection. No. And it's really easy to find out the focus, the thematic focus of a museum's mission or collection by just engaging more with them. Sure. Just like visit the website is the first and simple step. Do your research. Exactly. But um, other than that, there's no really reci a recipe. But maybe... I want take, a recipe. Take, take Give me steps, a recipe. Take your steps in your career wisely. Like think about, is it necessary to be uh, in the third art fair or should you more focus on getting contacts into to institutional people and be hmm. have meaningful conversations, studio visits, have texts written about your work that can then be published somewhere. So you get you build up more of a structure of, of getting known. Do you still go out and do studio visits? If my time allows, yes. I would love to do that more actually. When you find an artist that you think is in the work is interesting as a curator at an institution, what is your opinion on the balance of the aesthetics of the work to the text, the artist statement or the whatever that, ex that explains the concept behind it? I come to this because I do portfolio reviews for people and, and constantly I get either stunning artwork with crappy statements or amazing statements with crappy artwork. And so I'm interested from, a, from your perspective, like what's that balance? What's more important, less important, et cetera, et cetera. I would say both is important and I think it's great that I increasingly know people who say of themselves, such as you do, that they are portfolio reviewers that's a new line of jobs that I think is really important because I'm I'm quite uh, open here so if, if someone makes great work but is incapable of writing about their own work that's a pity but then you can seek help with someone who can help you with writing the text Wait, okay, is for that, your portfolio well and that's a question I have too 
growing up in America, being taught in America, my, my professors told me that I must write my own artist statement. But now it, it seems to have become acceptable to have either a ghost writer or a curator or a somebody else write your artist statement on your behalf. Yes? Ghostwriter, I don't know. I mean, I don't condemn it, but uh, you can just do it openly and ask someone who can help you with that. It, it must not be that someone writes the text for you, but maybe reviews it together with you and helps you improve it hmm. because you will also need it to um, address verbally what your work is about. It's not only in your portfolio, so you will be asked time and again to explain it. So you, you'd rather do it yourself than have a ghostwriter do it. But um, on the other hand, um, yeah, of course, people use ghostwriters also. It's fine as long as they can convey what it's about. When I say ghostwriter, I just mean like a, a professional writer who doesn't, they wouldn't put their name to it, basically. Why not? So that's, yeah. Yes. Just seeking I think it is important help. to be able to express that. But I think now it's more that we have become more open about that. So we, not everyone can have the same talents. So if right. someone is also not an avid public speaker, you won't condemn the person if the concepts are great, you know. Well, I mean, and that sort of thing is, is like a lot of creative people get into the creative arts, let's say visual creative mm -hmm. arts, because they can't write very exactly. well. They can't express right. themselves very eloquently through words or text or whatever. So the idea that like we have now been sort of, the industry has moved so that we are obligated to have some text that um, theoretically enhances the appreciation of the work, but oftentimes doesn't. Yeah. So like, it's sad. I like, I really, really would love to just pay somebody else to write my text for me because, uh, I mean, I can, exp I can tell another person my, what I, what I'm working on, but to try and put it together into some eloquent way that really enhances it and stuff. I feel like sometimes an outsider, you know, non-artist mm -hmm would have a better ability to contextualize the work and, and really it, yeah. and, and but 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 to see it in a more objective way instead of the very subjective way that a lot of artists do like because we, we're all attached to it we have emotions we have we have you know decades of experiences that we're like oh my god it's about everything it's about my whole life you know yeah, and they like it's not it's it's just a thing you made about something that some maybe somebody else might have a more succinct way of explaining. Absolutely. So I think yeah, everyone should handle that how they can and want. Mm. But of course, it helps to have a good text because, as you said, sometimes there's amazing work, but super crappy explanation, or which annoys me even more actually is if there is a text promising the world yeah. but the work does not sustain yeah i know i see it all the time i do i do these reviews i do a lot of reviews i do these online reviews mm -hmm. for lens culture uh for, so it's all photography and like i look through thousands and thousands of portfolios and there's yeah. so much it, it's that mix like there's either like great ideas that don't deliver visually or really beautiful things that don't make sense once I read some text and it, but it seems like a contemporary thing this need for this combination of quality images quality text like this wasn't around 30 40 years ago there, there wasn't this necessity was there I wouldn't know you're an art historian no but from the practical field I um, really can't answer the question if 40 years ago if someone sent a portfolio to MoMA if it was necessary to have 
great images and a good text. I need to do research on that. You have to. I do. Um, but I can only think about, um, assume, make assumptions that it, it has become more important because also it has become more important, as you mentioned earlier, to have your career together, to know at least one good curator, one collector, to have a good gallery. And um, by the time of 23, you should have your portfolio reviewed and have a great text and high glossy images made by a professional photographer. That's like, no, I'm not demanding that this should happen, but it seems to me like this is increasingly what people and students of art think they have to have achieved. Oh, okay. By the age oh my God. Because like I'm double and that age. Is, and I'm like, at <sighs> some point, it is good that the new generation is more eager to, to do stuff faster or more efficiently than maybe some past decades of artist generations who were like, okay, let's just hang out and wait for the call. You know, so that's uh, that's a healthy thing. But on the other hand, it gets too much pressure, too much professionalized very early on. You should be able to experiment more. And I, I think it's not that strict. And I could imagine that 40 years ago, uh, it was not the case that you had to have that. Because also, uh, if we take the online representation, now also very young, at a very young age, artists do have their own website filled with professional photography and exhibition mm -hmm. views and, and reviews. And this is something that was not possible 40 years ago or rarely with some exceptions, you know. It's true. Last two questions. It's a very vague, open, interpretive question, but basically it's a, so you're a curator at a very prestigious museum here in Vienna and, and some advice for curator, potential curators that would like to uh, achieve such a, a, a you know, a, position in their careers uh, advice that this can be things to stay away from like don't do like you know don't make the same mistake I made kind of thing or some advice to try and like build their careers and make it so that they can be more successful in their endeavors because there's a lot of independent curators which seem to be again a, a new industry that seems to have popped up in the past 20, 30 years that uh, they all want to be with an institution, but there just aren't a lot of institutional jobs. And generally the people who have them stay with them for decades, such as yourself. And so they don't come up very often. So it's like, how can they get themselves in the right uh, position in their own careers to be able to be ready for something like this? I guess as an independent curator, if you choose to uh, pr procure a career in an institution, you would have to focus on doing shows that are really professionally made in terms of also the um, surroundings like uh, loans, transports, the way the venue it's presented at, not necessarily the, the works per se, it can be really experimental and however, but mm -hmm. it should um, show that you can handle institutional kind of obligations. It's a very different setup. Sometimes artists we work with are very astonished by the set of rules and uh, prohibitions and things that we all have to deal with that you don't if you make exhibitions in a free independent space, which are always also sometimes too outside of my institutional practice. So I'm well aware that 
things can be done differently or maybe mm -hmm. faster or you can write your press release three days before the opening because easy here it's uh, at least four months prior to the opening and it has to be a copy edited it has to be translated so you have you'd have to think about a lot of bureaucratical structures how and long rules. does an exhibition take to, from planning, from, from like initial idea to actual physical opening? That really depends on the kind of exhibition, but roughly between um, one and two years or even two and three years if okay. it's more in a larger context of, of collections or loans. From yeah, other I was going to say, yeah, it, a lot of it's just like coordinating from other yeah. people's collections. So there's and stuff a like more this. old school exhibitions that we do mm -hmm. um, take a longer time in preparation to, to secure the loans. And for example, the last show I did, Uncanny Values, with contemporary artists, it took about one and a half years to conceive it and then make it real. That's pretty fast. Really. It is, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Some people were like, whoa, okay. But we had researched before on the topic, so it was rather okay to do it. But uh, for the Hello Robot exhibition that we did in 2017, that is still an international traveling show, um, it took over two years to compile it because it's also traveling for four years so you have different ways of yeah contracts and of oh, the thinking. logistics the Logist insurance absolutely. the shipping the boy yeesh. yeah just the building of the crates to move things like, yeah it's like, absurd right yeah okay okay so that's yeah, yeah. think about uh, the how an institution would review your yeah. so, so cv if you had yeah so beyond just like putting on quality exhibitions exactly. get, getting good reviews and things like this you need to show an expertise in actual exactly. like institutional working like exactly. collaborations and things like this okay it's good last question it's a little bit elaborate so bear with me let me get through this because I created this podcast to try and learn how the art industry works now because I have fallen into lack of knowledge I created a quantifiable outcome that I'm going to try and achieve because whatever it is you're about to answer to me, I will do. And I will keep people involved through the podcast, the results of whatever it is you're about to tell me to do. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to show that I have learned how the art industry functions well enough to get a piece of my artwork on exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art in New York City. Cool. How do I do that? Maybe wait for the next reinstallation they are doing because they just reopened. Legally, legitimately through the industry. Like so that so I mean the idea the idea is not like give me Jeffrey Sauce's phone number. The idea is is I wanna know I'm trying to learn from the people in the industry. What are the ways that creative people can put their career tracks sort of in the right direction for success. And I created this arbitrary short-term goal of an exhibition in the Museum of Modern Art. I mean, it could be any, you know, from a- So you want an exhibition or you want just, I just one want work one, in I there? Do, yeah, I am, I'm putting my bar low <laughs> of one piece. Okay, so which kind of work are you doing? Currently I do photographic based that I then paint and collage on that's my current work and you have certain themes that you're concerned figurative but it's 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 very personal it's about scars and layers and emotional impact of uh, life experiences and things like this so like a lot of um, layering of, uh, of uh, 
effects of life experiences kind of like does is this making sense or not it is making sense okay great so you could then wait for a thematic group show coming up and write to the curator in charge with your portfolio and suggest you might she might be she or he might be interested in reviewing your work okay well, i love it. the great idea i love it but the my thing my thing is like let's take the museum of modern art yeah. it, it could be tape modern whatever but this is the museum of i as a public person as an artist or the practicing artist i don't hear about these exhibitions or the planning of these exhibitions mm. until they're already planned okay that then you have to start by expanding your network and sources so that, yeah i mean that's the thing is like so how do artists potentially hear about or have the ability to approach a curator at a museum so that we can go back to you in this case like how would they hear about an exhibition that you're planning in the future to, because they, they because may fit sometimes with it. it's announced it depends on the museum and on the kind of exhibition but sometimes you talk about it with colleagues with other artists or even the institution itself uh, makes the public aware of the plan to have in three years an exhibition about whatnot. So it is possible. Okay. I mean, that that's doable. For, I mean, cause, but that's something that I could do as a stepping stone, again, towards MoMA, like sort of career path kind of thing, or i.e. any of the listeners that I'm doing this as a proxy for. That they could do is basically like try to find some institution that does offer this sort of hey we're, we 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 are planning this thing in the future do a little bit of research exactly. see if you can fit with it to try and get yourself into a a larger regional institution that might then theoretically be seen by or feed to the exactly. bigger corporate bigger curators and the bigger museums okay I like that I, I, yeah that's good okay that's just a lot of research I know right nothing comes like. Easy. Why does nothing come easy? I want some I easy. Can give me, me some, too, please. Somebody give me some easy. Seriously? No. Sorry, not no. tonight. <laughs> All right, fine. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you, Matthew.